I'm Arthur Perlstein, and from the True Suspense Files, this is Blink and He's Gone. Here is Part 2, A Discovery. Tuesday, June 4, 2002, 7 a.m. The morning started out much like the day before. The investigation continued at a frantic pace. Searchers began to redouble their efforts, and police were following up on an increasing number of leads called in to the tip line. Soon, however, there was a dramatic turn of events, and everything changed. 8.15 a.m. The Farkandapur's housekeeper makes a shocking discovery. Saeed Farkandapur recalled it this way to CNN reporters. I was up in my bedroom about 8.15 in the morning. I heard one loud scream, and then, a few seconds later, another loud scream. I thought something had happened to my kids. I got up to come and see what had happened. At the same time, my housekeeper ran upstairs. He was frantic. He said, Sir, a child's body is in the pool. And I totally freaked out. I was like, oh, no, no, no. And right away I got on the phone, called 911, and they connected me with the fire department. And I told them what had happened. Within minutes, firefighters arrived at the scene. They saw the body under a ladder near the wall of the pool in the deep end lying face up on a slope about six and a half feet down. They immediately pulled a boy wearing blue and white swim trunks out of the pool. It was Paolo Ayala. He was stone cold dead. Word of the discovery traveled quickly and there was widespread shock and disbelief. Soon, LAPD Deputy Chief David Kalish was speaking to reporters. At this time, he said, it appears that at some point during the night or early morning hours, someone placed that body in the swimming pool. Kalish explained that there is no way that boy's body was there yesterday. He pointed out that police had left the grounds of the estate at 10 p.m. the night before. The body had been found lying partly against the side of the pool, consistent, he said, with having been deposited there after death. The deputy chief's conclusion seemed an obvious one. The pool had been the very first place police had checked. They estimated that about 50 people, including police, had examined the pool and found nothing. Throughout the last two days, investigators had looked in and around the pool searching for clues, and there certainly had been no sign of a body. And you will recall that the pool maintenance man had been there the day before and reported nothing amiss. So the mystery had become much darker and deeper. It was difficult enough to imagine why someone would harm the boy, But what possible motivation could there be for bringing his body back and dumping it in the pool? Speculation was rampant. Had someone in the Farkandapur household been involved? Could whoever have killed Paolo 
whether accidentally or, or by deliberate act, have later placed the body in the pool to make it appear like a drowning? Or did Said have an enemy who wanted to bring him into disrepute? Or was this the act of an individual truly sick and depraved to an extent almost inconceivable? Among the theories spreading on the internet was that this was the act of a satanic cult. Whatever had happened, the fact that the body had been dumped overnight created the presumption of a most dreadful murder. Meanwhile, the Ayalas were at home when police arrived to tell them the news. They were incredulous at first, but then the family was shown a photograph of the body with blood visible around Paolo's nose. According to the boy's uncle, they went into total shock. They don't want to speak to anyone, he said. Later that evening, Said and Kimberly Farkandapur would visit the Ayalas at their apartment, where they would find a gathering of relatives and friends there to console the family. The Farkandapurs hugged Franklin and Edwina and offered condolences. The Ayalas thanked them, but had little to say. Elsewhere, the El Rodeo PTA wasted no time to announce a fund to assist the Ayala family. As the horror struck across Los Angeles, neighbors in Tony Homby Hills were particularly disturbed. This is one of the safest places to live, said one neighbor who lived five houses down from the Farcondapur estate. That's why I pay one and a half million dollars to live here, she said. As it happens, she explained, she ordinarily walks the neighborhood unafraid around 10 o'clock most nights but she had not done so on Monday. The bewildering discovery in the pool caused police to re-examine everything and change their focus. LAPD spokesman Sergeant John Pasquariello announced in the afternoon that detectives had obtained search warrants and were bringing cadaver dogs to search the estate, inside the mansion and outside, for evidence that the body had been moved. Also known as human remains detection dogs, cadaver dogs are trained to track down the scent of decomposing human bodies or parts, including blood, bones, and tissues. Dogs can find those buried deep in the ground or under collapsed buildings. Many can even explore lakes and rivers from boats, detecting drowning victims underwater. But even when a body has been moved, highly trained cadaver dogs can identify residue scents that indicate a body was once in that location, and that is what the dogs were being used for at the estate. Police were mum about what, if anything, was turning up as the press and public clamored for more information. Later that afternoon, Deputy Chief Kalish suggested that a wider range of theories was on the table. In a puzzling comment, he seemed to contradict his statement from earlier in the day. While declining to say whether there were any obvious signs of trauma, Kalish mentioned that police were no longer ruling out the possibility that the body had been there since Sunday. Now the coroner's office had the body, and anything definitive would have to wait an autopsy 
the next day. Across the World Wide Web, the Greek chorus found it ridiculous that the body could have been there all along. Impossible that not a single person would have seen him drowning, and likewise that not anyone would have seen a body in the pool. But Saeed Farkandapur told reporters he was confident it was so, and it had simply been a tragic accident. Detectives and cadaver dogs ended their search at 5 p.m. on Tuesday. Police declined to reveal what had been found. Wednesday, June 5, morning. Speculation was running wild as people began to anticipate the autopsy being conducted that morning and any news about results that, most were led to believe, would shed considerable light as to what may have happened to Paolo Ayala. A police spokesman announced that there would be a news conference at 2.30 p.m. at which autopsy findings would be revealed. Craig Harvey, the county coroner's operations chief, explained that they would be trying to determine whether the boy had drowned or whether the cause of death was something else. Body temperature and time of disappearance should provide clues, Harvey said. Police officials told reporters that pathologists would also be looking for pool chlorine in the lungs and the presence of the foamy mucus that often results from choking. They would examine Paolo's stomach for evidence of food served at the party. Dr. Thomas Bassler, a retired pathologist and former L.A. deputy medical examiner, spoke with reporters in some detail. Tests would be run to help determine whether stabbing, shooting, suffocation, or strangulation might have caused the death. If the body had really been in the pool for a couple of days, Bassler said, there would be what he called a significant dishpan hand effect on the tissues, whereas a body dumped more recently would not appear that way. Signs of a struggle would likely be present if a struggle had occurred. It's surprising how easy it is to tell, Bassler explained. Even a small child would show signs like a broken fingernail or something under the fingernail. You become very strong if you're fighting for your life, he added. Bassler made clear he had no inside information, but did say it was even possible that the lack of a body in the pool may have been, in effect, an illusion. The swimming pool at the estate was about 35 feet long and 20 feet wide. It was 9 feet deep at the far end. Paolo, who his uncle later revealed did not know how to swim, had last been seen in the shallow end of the pool. Saeed Farkandapur spoke to CNN late in the morning. It seemed he had become even more convinced that this was a case of accidental drowning, and he introduced a new angle. Despite appearing clear, he explained, the pool had, in fact, been somewhat murky. The pool maintenance man had added chemicals to the pool, but Saeed pointed out that he did not sweep or vacuum it, and Saeed admitted something else. While walking around the pool with police on Sunday, 
two of my kids kept saying, Dad, you can't see the bottom of the pool. And I pretty much like ignored them, he said. They repeated the statement three or four times, standing by the pool, all along with the officer right next to me. I was under the impression, Saeed had added, that if there was anything in the water, you would be able to see it even though the water is murky. As it turns out, I don't think that was the case. But, almost as if to dismiss the significance of this, Saeed Farkandapur added that by the time his kids pointed this out, it was two hours after the disappearance, so it would have been too late to save Paolo anyway. There was no further word until about two in the afternoon when it was announced that the press conference, scheduled for 2.30, was being delayed because they wanted to make sure that the next of kin, all the next of kin, were notified first before they released the results of that autopsy to the media. The anticipation grew as people questioned whether it was remotely possible that this seven-year-old boy, Paolo Ayala, had been in the pool since Sunday afternoon. The Ayala family had remained in seclusion from the media at their apartment. Shortly before the news conference began later that afternoon, police called Franklin and Edwina to let them know the cause of death. By this time, a few friends and family had joined them at their apartment as they began to watch the announcement on television. Thank you for listening to Blink and He's Gone. Stay tuned for Episode 3, A Blink of the Eye. Blink and He's Gone is a production of True Suspense Podcasts, written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions.